0: It's my favorite play. Mm-hmm. We, we know plagues are bad, bad. but this it's is the name of the, of the podcast. podcast. It's my favorite play.
1: Hi, I'm Elise Sartowino,
0: And I'm Jeffrey Todd Knuckles, and welcome to My Favorite Plague. Doing our part in this most recent plague, we bravely stayed home and watched television. Discovering a fascination with plagues, we also kept discussing what our behaviors during a plague said about us and our society. We thought you might enjoy this conversation as well, so every episode, we pick a plague and each present our favorite thing about that plague. After presenting our favorite thing, we discuss what we think it all means. We have created uh, discussion boards on our website, myfavoriteplague.com, so we can hear your opinions and ideas. Too soon? We don't think so. Probably too late, if you ask us.
1: What? The 1918 influenza outbreak was the worst pandemic in history since the Black Death of the 1300s. 50 million people died from March of 1918 until the early 1920s. Due to the special characteristics of this virus, it was not just fatal to the very young or the very old, as most flu outbreaks tend to be. This disease offered especially high mortality to young adults, the same age as the people traveling across the globe due to World War I. The nightmare of this flu, along with the ravages of the war, was reflected in the art and social movements of the time and changed society forever. And now it's time for Elise. The first case of Spanish flu was not in Spain. More on that later but rather in Kansas. The first case of the first wave, milder than those to come, was identified in an army cook at Camp Funston. And although there were probably unidentified cases before that, that's the one that we...
0: Sorry. Funston, that was funny.
1: Okay. okay. Sorry. Um, there are probably unidentified cases before. He's the first identified one. World War I officially ended in November of 1918, and those dates are very important to the spread of Spanish flu. There are many reasons that the war created a perfect environment for the spread of the flu. Barracks, military units, the trenches, the physical environment of warfare, all of these things are a great helper to if you're looking to spread disease. Another thing that may be hard for all of us to consider given the times we live in, is that travel used to be a rare event. People didn't travel across the world unless they were immigrants or refugees and very, you know, they didn't do it very often. But in World War I, all that changed. Soldiers could be in Kansas barracks one day and very quickly find themselves in London or Germany or some other far-flung area. Regions that had previously had no exposure to the flu were exposed through these movements, and places like Western Samoa initially lost 22% of the population, likely because that population had never experienced seasonal flu. It was also true that when soldiers from various black backgrounds were placed together, the men from rural places were more likely to die as they hadn't experienced the crowded exposure of urban life. In August, the second wave, which was a much more virulent strain, it began, and due to troop movements, it spread and mutated like crazy. France, Sierra Leone, Massachusetts, South America, the Ottoman Empire, South Africa, Russia, Bombay, the second wave was truly global, and the death totals were staggering. From August of 1918, the next 24 weeks, killed more people than AIDS killed in 24 years and the Black Death killed in a century. It's possible from newer research that what seemed like sound strategy resulted in disaster. When soldiers caught a mild case of the flu, the military sent the soldier home, seeking to protect the rest of the troops. But many they encountered became infected, and they brought the disease back home because this flu was so contagious. All this makes sense and seems like a streak of bad luck and highly unusual events converging to create disaster. But there was one element to this story, and in the most sarcastic way possible, this is my favorite thing about Spanish flu. Do you know why Spanish flu is called the Spanish flu? Because Spain was the only country who actually reported what happened because they remained neutral in the war. Censorship did a lot of work to spread the disease, and efforts to protect morale, fears that the reporting would give the other side an advantage, all these beliefs killed thousands, maybe millions. Great Britain, a country that had been in the war since 1914, used the Defense of the Realm Act, called a D notice, to suppress stories that might be considered bad for national morale. This led to claims that the flu wasn't a serious threat and made suggestions that it was unpatriotic to be concerned about the flu rather than the war. When the Prime Minister caught the flu, it was claimed he had caught a chill on a trip to Manchester. Italy followed suit and denied claims that the flu was serious, even during the far deadlier second wave. The Germans covered up the flu because they feared that the staggering number of flu fatalities would end the war in the enemy's favor. One particularly poignant tragedy resulting from this censorship took place in Philadelphia. There was a liberty loan march scheduled in the city to raise war bonds. Doctors warned this was dangerous and tried to cancel the march due to flu. However, the city officials and newspapers claimed fears were overblown and refused to cancel the march and newspapers refused to run the doctors' letters of concern. Over the next four weeks, 12,191 people were killed by the flu in that city. The death toll of the Spanish flu was 50 million. The death toll of World War I was 40 million. When I say this is my favorite thing, what I mean is that this is something that can't be forgotten. World War I was full of stupid decisions that cost lives. Books have been written about the subject. But the fact that the disease actually killed more people than the war and the number could have been far less had the powers that be not feared a psychological or tactical advantage in the war. This is something we need to think about in any future large-scale problems. War definitely causes a loss of perspective. Battle decisions don't have the luxury of much analysis, but we are talking about cold calculations made with nothing more than the desire to win and with war and ignorance as serious factors. Todd and I are going to do a members' podcast about the Dada art movement that was greatly influenced by these events. It is considered an absurdist movement, and I get it. There would have to be a societal reflection on this nightmare, and I feel like horror and absurdity go hand in hand. It would be hard to believe in the same world you believed in before you realized that your leaders were making these kinds of idiotic decisions. Disease loves censorship, and censorship can do a lot more than destroy art and creativity. In this instance, it killed an awful lot of people.
0: So, I guess, let's see, do I have a question for you? I think my question might be, I mean, gosh, you think about the 11th day of the 11th hour and that whole thing about the end of World War II. Why don't you, know? you
1: explain that a little bit more, because a lot of people don't know that.
0: Um, well, okay. I'll explain it because I don't, let's see. It, they had, World War One ended at a specific time. I can't remember the exact.
1: Uh, but that time wasn't a natural end to hostilities. It was a time chosen because of the poetic nature of the days and hours. Right. right.
0: It was like the 11th day, the 11th hour, or something like that. Uh, so I don't want to get that. wrong, but maybe I just get it a little bit wrong, but they had to, you had, it was it was like, it was like gym class. Like you had to keep playing until the coach hit the whistle. And so they kept fighting until they said, okay, now it's over. And, you know, any time, any, excuse me, any life lost between the time they signed the peace treaty and when they said, okay, now it's done is, is tragedy is, is right. pure tragedy. It's, it's beyond tragic. It's stupid tragedy. And you think about that and how stupid that is. And this is even like, you thought it was bad, but it only gets worse. Like it's actually worse than that. And it's just, uh, you know, I mean, there we go. It's just aristocratic, hubris and arrogance and all that
1: yeah. and i think that that's an important thing to remember is that the people making the decisions about when to end the war about censorship these were all highfalutin aristocrats and the people a lot of times fighting in the war were not and so sure, yeah, yeah, if yeah. you if it's you like the
0: black sabbath song
1: yeah right if you look at how that more people died of flu than the war. All people cared about was winning. They didn't care about the cost of winning. Yeah. And to a, to a ridiculous, extremely bizarre degree.
0: No, it's, it's, yeah, it's beyond, it's almost beyond comprehension that someone would do that, that we can't say, hey, look, there's this disease going on. No, we're just going to lie about it so we can make sure we win this war. And then we'll deal with this. this with this thing that that killed 50 million people.
1: And it wasn't even a critical factor in the war. I mean, that's the thing I don't get. Like, oh, we can't admit there's a flu, but everyone's dying of flu? It's super obvs. Hello. Yeah. And I don't understand how this one acknowledging what was happening before everybody's eyes was such a tactical
0: and now it's time for time all right well mine is actually a little bit um a little bit more peppy good Uh, a little bit peppier okay uh my favorite thing about the spanish flu here we go brevig mission a small oceanside village in alaska Currently, only about 400 people live there. Um, so back in 1918, 72 people from a small village of 80 uh, died during a five-day uh, period from November 15th to the 20th in 1918. But Todd, you said it's going to be peppier. Okay, well, I have to start with the—it with the, gets better. Just hang on. The local government put up a small mass grave with white crosses, and that was that. Um, that was it. 72 people out of 80 <laughs> uh, died in 1918 in Alaska, and they were buried on a small hill. Um, in 1951, a 25-year-old Swedish Ph.D. student at the University of Iowa, his name was Jonah Holton, went to Brevig Mission to try and unearth the virus to gain new insight and maybe get some answers about the virus and why it was so deadly. He and his team actually had to set up campfires to warm up the earth in order to excavate. That's pretty, pretty wild, in my opinion. So, 1951, Holton obtains lung tissue from about five different bodies. Bummer alert, 1950s tech was just not up to snuff, and he could not successfully transport the tissue back to Iowa to his lab where he could study it. Uh, but he gave it the old college try, and I guess he figured that was that. Until 46 years later. Wow. He, yeah, 46 years later, he's checking out Science Journal, which has to be the most generic name of a journal ever. And he reads a paper. It's called Initial Genetic Characterization of the 1918 Spanish Influenza Virus by Jeffrey Do- Je- by Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger. Now, they had extracted RNA from a 21-year-old soldier that had died in a South Carolina hospital on September 26, 1918, in order to uh, write that paper. Uh, Holton contacts Taubenberger and says, hey, if I can get you lung tissue from Alaska, maybe we can reconstruct the virus. Uh, Will this help you? And Taubenberger says, yes. So, 46 years later, at the age of 72, Holton goes back to Brevet Mission, back to Alaska, and, I love this, according to legend, borrows his wife's gardening shears <laughs> to, to assist in the excavation, which is, that's really great. Uh, he dug up, I know it doesn't sound as nice as excavate, but that is what they did. He dug up the body of a woman that had died in her early 20s, they named her Lucy Um by the by, and her lungs were perfectly preserved in the frozen ground. Now, Holton, 72, pays for this trip by himself, which at the time was about $3,200. I guess now that would be 20000 I don't know. That. Right. Holton ships the lung tissue off to Taubenberger and another researcher whose name was Dr. Ann Reed. Uh, she was from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. I didn't know where there was such a thing. Ten days later, he gets a call from Taubenberger confirming that positive 1918 genetic material had been obtained from the lungs of Lucy.
1: Holy cow! 1919,
0: a team of researchers uh, succeeded in sequencing the gene sequence of the 1918 virus. They did it with the lung tissue from Lucy and the soldier I told you about from South Carolina and the genetic material from another serviceman who had died at the age of 30 in Camp... Upton in new york interestingly enough he had also died on september 26 1918 they discovered among other things that the virus had infected humans somewhere between 1900 and 1915 so i guess it's a big window but it wasn't exactly on 1918 uh in fact
1: it had a lead up is what they're saying right, right yeah
0: so uh and there were multiple genetic factors that were responsible for the severity of the virus um, so, not just uh, propaganda, but they also, you know, the virus itself was uh, had lots of genetic factors that were responsible for its severity. So, studying the virus uh, can help with the prevention and spread of new pandemics. And we all know how important that is. And we all know that there will be more. But that's my favorite study when we my, my favorite story, my favorite thing about this is that there was a guy named Jonah Hulton who at the age of 72 went back to Alaska and accomplished his this life goal. And he was it's not that like, oh, goody, he got to do what he wanted to. But he was that driven. That's I don't know. You know, if I get to be 72, I don't know how many things I'm. Hey, Todd, do you want to go back to Carrie and, and, you know, sing with the choir again (laughs) or i don't well
1: also though that he was still around for the advances in technology and science that made what he wanted to do possible i think that that's really great so let me let me just ask you a quick question so prior to this study they didn't have the sequencing they didn't have the actual genome or sequencing of the flu of the 18 1918 spanish flu they didn't exactly know how it was constructed correct correct and so because of this work now they know and they can study it and potentially help in the future
0: correct
1: that's um and it was just like a couple of people
0: yeah just a couple of people that had died and they got their they got their stuff and their tissue their genetic tissue and uh
1: I guess, did it help that it was so cold up there? Well, that
0: was the whole thing, is that it was in, you know, I mean, in the beginning, it was so cold. In 1951, it was so cold that they had to set up campfires in order to dig in the ground. But that preserved um, the but tissue. That pres- that's why, yeah, exactly, that preserved the tissue. Now I don't know about, you know, the guy from South Carolina. Certainly, it wasn't too cold in South Carolina, but they got some kind of genetic uh, tissue from maybe it had
1: been preserved scientifically
0: yeah yeah
1: wow. but, uh,
0: yeah 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 he didn't he the the flight back from alaska to iowa in 1951 um they had to make a couple of stops planes just weren't what they are today and refuel and stuff like that. And he's and holding
1: on to this he's, tissue.
0: He's hanging on to this tissue, you know, in a plane. Like, it's pretty crazy when <laughs> like you think about
1: it. Like, probably in a cooler or something. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, <sighs> in, his,
0: it's in his Yeti, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Crazy, right? It's just crazy. But I, I am fascinated by by people that are so driven. And we, we I feel like today... At least I, uh, yeah, they're out there. I just that's what I want to do. I want to meet some, I want to meet some scientist that has no idea about what's going on in the world of popular culture, etc. And is like, yeah, I only, I don't know anything about that. You know, I only study this. You know,
1: this one particular thing thing that I'm completely completely driven driven to solve. You know,
0: you know, and I, I don't know if he was that way, but. he he was close to being that way most people you know 46 years later they read something they're 72 they're like yeah i'm retired
1: (laughs) right well and it's not like he was still working in a lab he brought his wife's garden shears garden
0: shears that's so great i love that i love that so that's my favorite thing i thought that was a good story that is a good story it's almost uh Jeez, it's almost spielberg-esque it's so right. cheesy but i was
1: thinking indiana jones yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. right you
0: know, i'm gonna do it one last run kind of you know <laughs> cue the corny music and everything but it was great it's, it really happened you know wow okay thank you you're welcome What What does it all mean? What does it all mean? Mean What does it all mean now? What does it all mean? What does it all mean? What does it all all mean?
1: mean now? When Todd and I were discussing what we think it all means, we don't want to keep beating a dead horse, and so I'm going to phrase this in a different way, but the motivations of people, seem to have so much more to do with solving or spreading disease than the disease itself. Todd pointed out in his story that there were certain factors about this particular flu strain that made it much more spreadable and much, you know, easier to pass to each other and more severe when it did, but the actions of people helped spread it. Because of their motivations, the motivation that they thought that it was this strategic advantage to keep quiet about it in the war, which kind of proved to be ludicrous. But also, it was the motivations of people to solve it. Like this, this, what was the guy's name, Todd?
0: Jonah Halton.
1: Jonah Halton lived with this dream his whole life and was still obviously keeping up on the research and because otherwise he wouldn't have come across the study and offered to get the lung tissue. So, I don't know, Todd. There's something about that, that if a disease is part of non-human, and maybe someday we'll do animal plagues, I feel like animals are just, they're doing what they normally do when a disease strikes. But if a disease strikes people, the way that they behave Says so much more about how serious the disease will or won't be.
0: That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, it it wasn't out of ignorance. It wasn't out of the 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 spread of the 1918 virus wasn't out of ignorance. Like, right? They, it's not like
1: they didn't have enough information.
0: Right? They knew that this was happening. They just thought it wasn't as important as defeating the you know the other team which is pretty bad i guess it's not just a team right well winning essentially the war.
1: winning yeah. the war right and i think it's that you know you were when you were talking about you want to meet someone who doesn't know anything about pop culture and who is just just completely consumed with you know solving this disease or curing this disease, or identifying this disease, there's a certain way in which a loss of perspective helps spread the disease, but also that loss of perspective can help fight the disease, because single-mindedness over and over again with all of the plagues that we've talked about has been responsible for either curing or fighting the disease. I mean, Jon Snow was completely right. wow. single-minded.
0: Good point. Two sides, of the same coin.
1: Right. And it is the very thing, this single-minded, dogged pursuit of winning the war made the Spanish flu so much worse than it needed to be and killed more people than the war. But the single-minded, dogged pursuit that this guy Holton had to reconstruct the virus and identify it, it was only his single-mindedness that did it. Right. And I don't really... What? I know. I don't really know what to do with that.
0: Human nature. Tell him that it's human nature.
1: Yes. Michael Jackson. To quote
0: the bard, Yeah. tell him that it's human nature. I don't even know if he wrote that song. Probably Quincy Jones.
1: Probably Quincy Jones. Yeah. I feel more comfortable with Quincy Jones than Michael Jackson anyways. Mm-hmm some songs I'm just saying as a person
0: okay uh, well yeah that's a whole other episode yes yeah.
1: but I don't know I mean the more we do this podcast, the more I look at the complexity of working on pandemics because there is and again taking a page from last episode, When COVID was going on, it was so easy to say pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, as if that were the entire picture. And like everything else, you know, we all want simple solutions to complex problems. And that's a quote from our friend Ben, by the way. Um, But... Damn good quote. It is a good quote. But the fact is that there are none. If the problem's complex, the solution's complex, and maybe there's not even a quote-unquote solution... Maybe you just take human... You have to take human nature into account with everything you do. And the very thing that damns you is going to be the thing that saves you.
0: We're getting into Spielberg territory.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's true!
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's the old... The old, uh, you know, at the very end script plot twist. With with great uh, power comes great responsibility.
1: Yeah, but it's true. I mean... We are deeply flawed beings, but the good... Speak for yourself. (laughs) I am a deeply flawed being.
0: There you
1: go. Yes. But when we do great things, it's with the same kind of behaviors in which we do horrible things. It's very confusing to me. We need to...
0: You need to solve this now, now. right now, right. in during this conversation. The
1: duality of man.
0: Right. right. The human thing.
1: Yeah. But it is. It's, it's a lot to take in and think about and mull over. And I really would love it if um, we're making some improvements on our website and improving the discussion board. And if you become a member, we can um, have this discussion further on the discussion board because... It's a tough one to chew over. And like I said, I don't think there is a solution. I think it is one of those things you just have to accept. And good and bad are maybe not very useful constructions in looking at human behavior, especially how human beings act during play. Other than that, we would like to thank Katie, our newest member. She's fabulous and we appreciate her. And we really encourage you to become members. Become a
0: member because we're great.
1: And there's so many more member episodes to enjoy.
0: I know. Yeah. yeah. You, so, you get much you get much, more.
1: <laughs> you get much more than <laughs> you bargain for. Yeah, that's
0: right. You get much more. Whole more. More stuff. More goodness.
1: Yes. More goodness. goodness. And follow us on Instagram. We're eventually going to launch more social media, but we're ramping it up slowly and on our um, instagram page not only is there great plague facts but there's some every other wednesday there's cute dog videos yeah
0: man it's all there it's all there for you to consume
1: yes exactly all right well thank you very much thank you for listening to the spanish flu episode of my favorite plague We'd especially like to thank Molly for her fantastic introduction to this episode, and we would really like to thank the people who became members of My Favorite Plague this week and joined the Plague Hunt. It's a great place to be. Please follow us on Instagram, and whenever you listen to one of our episodes on any of the platforms where you listen, please like us, and if you have time, give us a review. It really means a lot. Also, whenever you get a chance, go to the website, become a member, and get access to all those fabulous members-only episodes. Thank you, and have a lovely and play-free day.